Interestingly enough, and I'm not going to take too much time tonight, kind of just share a couple of things with you. Um, we had an, an amazing time, and we're grateful for the experience. And I'm uh, going to show you a few slides, that, um, pictures that I actually took while we were there, because they tie into tonight's study. One of the things that's interesting about going to Israel is that as you travel through Israel, you're, you're there 2,000 years after Jesus, but a lot of what you see still has very, very major biblical implications. And some of the things that you see, you look at it and you go, this doesn't make me feel closer to God at all. It makes me feel closer to being run over. Um, so it, I, I'm going to, if I could, if we could, uh, let's kill the center lights, Christopher. That would be a little bit, a little bit easier. Um, what I want to do tonight is kind of give you a sense when we talk about the temple and we talk about the temple mount, we talk about the city walls because we're in the book of Nehemiah, amen? Um, it, it'd be a good idea if you kind of figured out exactly what that actually is. Uh, notice my, I actually have an error on mine. Isn't that cool? Um, so so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a little tour here because you're going to tour the old walls of the old city of Jerusalem. Um, this is actually the modern-day temple mount, basically from there to about right there. And then over to that corner right there, that's the Al-Aqsa Mosque. That's obviously the Dome of the Rock Mosque. And the original temple used to sit really more in this location right here. But when you talk about the old city, I'm going to show you a map in a second. You're really going to pick up this wall right here, which is the southern wall of the city. This is the eastern wall. That right there would be the eastern gate. And that's where Jesus is coming back through, by the way. So you notice it's kind of walled up that... that the uh, the story goes like this. The Muslims decided uh, what you see here is this wall was actually built in about 1532 by the by the Muslims. Um, so it's not the original wall. The original wall is beneath that. And on the other side, which is the western or the Wailing Wall, which is over in that location on that side. When you look at the western wall, what you're seeing is about the top six stones of a wall that's about 18 stones tall. And if you go underneath the city through the tunnels that have been excavated down to what is the western wall of the old Temple Mount, um, there are some stones in that wall that are up to 70 feet long and weigh almost 500 tons. Um, so these stones are absolutely huge. But the old walls of the city are actually beneath this Muslim cemetery right here. So as you go around this part of the city wall, the old city wall actually encompassed what is now the Temple Mount. And then down this wall right here, and then down to the city of David. So throw the next slide up there if you would. So what you're really looking at is the Temple Mount today is from there to there. So that's that wall goes over to this wall down to there. The old city that we're talking about Nehemiah's time actually goes just outside of what is the city, the city walls of the Temple Mount today. So this is the western wall, that one that you see everybody praying at all the time. So that would be in this location right here. Um, there is actually a road now that skirts that Muslim cemetery was right there. Um, the Mount of Olives is over here. And so this is the Kidron Valley that comes down that way. And then so the old city that we're really talking about is actually outside largely of what is inside of the, the walls that were built by the Turks, which are the big tall walls that you see all the way around the city today. So throw up that next slide. 
So to give you an idea where we are, there's Jerusalem. You're going to hear about the plains of Ono. There's Ono. Oh, no. Way over there. Um, that's that's about 36 miles or so. So it gives you a sense of the country. So when we talk about a country, you know, we think about the United States of America. America in one place, it's 3,256 miles from one side to the other. Um, Israel's not quite that large. It's about 64 miles from there to Jordan. So, and it's significantly smaller uh, than the county of San Bernardino. Um, we'll we'll do a little bit of this periodically, but to give you an idea, we were actually up in this area, which is the Syrian border, about 60 miles from Damascus. And the day after we left, they actually had fighting there. So, very, very, very small country. So we're talking about Jerusalem. Nehemiah is going to hear from Sanballat, Tobiah, and his buddies from over here uh, in this region. Next slide, please. And so what you just looked at, there's the remnant of that city wall. There's the old Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is a very interesting place to be, which we actually got to go on the Temple Mount, which it is almost never open anymore. Uh, actually hasn't been opened in several years, but we were on the only day that they opened it in the last several years, so we actually got to go on the Temple Mount. So that wall of that old city that I showed you goes right through there, right across that road. You can kind of see the top of it right there. That's actually Nehemiah's wall. Descends down the city, down this slope, basically goes around that little point and back up. So when you were looking at that map, that was the whole city of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's time. So very much significantly smaller, not even a half mile long uh, in spots, only about 150 to 200 yards wide. So we're not talking when we talk about this wall being completed in 52 days. You have to remember what was completed in 52 days. Next slide, please. That. That is actually Nehemiah's wall. So you're actually looking at it. It was excavated in 2007. Uh, a number of pottery shards down, found in what's called the stepstone structure. Um, this is actually the, the retaining wall to the palace of King David. It's been very, very, very well documented. We actually got to tour it, went through Hezekiah's tunnel and all those kind of good things to the springs of Gihon. Um, but this is the wall that was rebuilt by Nehemiah. And so next slide, please. And that's the underneath side of it, basically holding up what would have been then the walls of the city. So just inside of this was the city of Zion, which would have been King David's city in his time some 500 years before. And at Nehemiah's time, a very, very small settlement, um, just a couple of hundred yards long or so, and in many places not more than 100 yards wide, uh, inhabited probably by between eight and 10,000 people at the time. Um, so much, much smaller than the city of Jerusalem or the temple Mount, or certainly what is called the old city today. And so we're going to leave that one up, click the lights back on. So that's what got rebuilt. So when you talk about the walls of the city, you're not talking about those Turkish walls that are 60 feet tall and very precisely fit. You're talking about what was typically known as a Canaanian wall, where a wall would be used uh, with stones in their natural order, and then just simply stacked like these guys down here. So it was not fine masonry. Uh, it was a defensible space that they could be inside of. They would be well protected. And when you talk about Jerusalem being a city on a hill, itself is a hill. And in fact, Zion encompasses the whole Temple Mount all the way to what is Golgotha in the north. Um, but as you look as you look at the Temple Mount today, uh, the Temple Mount today is quite a bit larger than it used to be. The walled city is more than ten times what it used to be. 
And so it was a very much smaller area, but it's still a magnificent feat to think that in 52 days, uh, it went from the rubble that was destroyed by the Babylonians, King David's city basically destroyed, the temple. Um, can we click on, on slide one there? Is Alex still back there? Can you throw up slide one? Just click on the number numero uno slide. Because it helps, to, it helps to understand exactly what was... Lisa's going to come back there. Lisa, can you throw up that first one? Okay, so when you talk when you talk about the Temple Mount, what's actually the Temple Mount is a relatively small area. It only take you about two or three minutes to walk across the whole thing. So that was all part of, but very much smaller, like that wall that you saw on the last slide. Um, that first slide would have went down here, and the actual old Temple Mount would have been sitting roughly in this location, just kind of between the southern end of the Dome of the Rock Mosque and the northern end. So they believe the Holy of Holies resided someplace about in there. The rock that's underneath there is supposed to be the top of Mount Moriah, but actually Moriah Mountain, as it's called there, Mount Zion, extends all the way to the north end of the city, which is where Golgotha is. And so the part that we're talking about in our story would have been a shorter wall, probably down not more than 10, 15 feet high, running right along the edge of what is now the modern-day Muslim cemetery, encompassing the Temple Mount, and just a couple of hundred yards that direction. So now you know what it actually looks like. Amen? All right. We can go ahead and leave that one up. That's as good as any if you want. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your goodness. and Lord, we thank you for the blessing of, of being able to travel to your city, Lord, the city to which you will return uh, when you come back to this earth and that uh, hill that that picture is taken from, the Mount of Olives, will be split in two and you will return through that eastern gate that the Muslims walled up. And we pray, God, for the peace of Jerusalem. We ask that uh, you would be merciful and kind to our world, Lord, that is, is so set against you right now. And we pray as we study your word, God, that it would be alive to us. This is not theory. This is history. And we pray that as we read it and recognize that you have a message today to send to us uh, through your prophet Nehemiah, through his incredible leadership skills. We pray that we glean from your word, that we would know and understand what it means to walk humbly with our God. We bless you for your goodness. We ask that you would bless us as we study. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 6 tonight. This is one of those chapters that has so much personal application that it's almost kind of silly. And so I want to remind you that though this is a history lesson, as we saw last time we were together in this wonderful book, as we've had a couple of weeks now of a, a break from it, that our last study was the true test of leadership. And that leadership is never more truly tested than when the leader himself has to live it. When the leader himself and those under his care uh, get that wonderful hellogram. And I don't mean a telegram, I mean a hell, an H-E-L-L-O-gram from Satan. When the enemy comes knocking, when he attempts to overthrow and, and destroy the work of God. And as we said last time, when you begin to do anything that amounts to 
Uh, any work that could be used for the kingdom, you can count on the enemy coming alive uh, and well. And so tonight in chapter 6, as we begin this study tonight, there, there's going to be a lot of personal attack against Nehemiah himself. And the picture here is, is that very often, and I think one of the tragedies in our modern day, is that Satan doesn't have to destroy everybody in the church. He could be much more effective in simply trying to destroy the leader. And that is why we see some of the things that we see. It's why the the Catholic Church's scandal has been so painful and horrible. It is by no means every Catholic priest is a pedophile. But the simple fact that there were some brings a stain on the whole church. And when you can take down leadership you do much more harm than taking down a single person who occupies a single seat. And so Satan's strategy has always been to shoot more at the leaders than he does at anybody else. Because if I stumble, if I fall, if something happens to me, it's going to bring shame to this whole church. And I want to solicit your your prayers because my family is constantly under attack. And I don't say that to, you know, throw us in some other category, but to simply acknowledge the the truth that the enemy doesn't like what this church stands for, doesn't like what we accomplish for the kingdom, and he is going to shoot at me more than he's going to shoot at you for the most part. And so when we see this story begin to unfold... Nehemiah faced external opposition, and he faced internal opposition. And sometimes the most painful of the opposition that we face is really from the inside. It's from some of those that are closest to us. And so he's going to use several tactics that still work, and we're going to see them in this chapter tonight. You know, ridicule, threats of violence, internal bickering, selfishness, greed. Uh, How do you respond to those things? What do you say? And so as this unfolds, notice verse 1. It says, And now when it was reported to Sanballat, to Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab, I'm still jet lagging, so you'll have to forgive me if my tongue gets stuck, uh, and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall. Now, understand, now you've seen the actual wall. You know the task that was undertaken. That was it. And so these people, working pretty much day and night, with sword in one hand, trowel in the other, with watchmen set on the wall to make sure that uh, that as the progress ensued, that no one would come in the evening and knock down what was done, because you can see by that wall it wouldn't have been too tough for the enemy to come and simply have an unbuilding party in the night. And so that is why they worked through the evening. They needed to get a defensible space uh, that they could easily stay behind and make sure that they had an opportunity to defend their property and their lives. And so that wall is now up. And so when it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, to Geshem, uh, the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and that no breach remained in it, so that wall was now completed all the way around the Temple Mount, all the way down through David's city, that paved road that goes through the middle of it now was not there. It was a continuous line all the way around the city. Um, and that although at that time the doors had not been set in the gates, when Satan Ballot and Geshem sent a message to me saying, 
Notice this. If you can't beat them, you join them, and then you take over from the inside. It's one of the oldest tactics the enemy uses, is to try and put people on the inside because they couldn't get to you from the outside. If persecution doesn't work, if oppression doesn't work, then you try and get somebody inside. And so that is exactly what goes on here. It says, come, let us meet together at Cherephim on the plain of Ono. So that map I showed you, just 35 miles or so away, several cities between Jerusalem and there. Let's find a neutral place and let's kind of talk about it. But, wisely, Nehemiah says they were planning to harm me. One of the greatest weapons that we have in the defense of the kingdom is discernment. The ability to know that God is saying something when perhaps the circumstance and situation are saying something else. And it only comes as a work of the Spirit. It's not something you can study for. There's no discernment test. You can, well, I'm now a discerner. You know, when you mark off three or four things on a box. It is a work of the Spirit where God simply imparts to you knowledge that is not available any other way than God simply lets you know there's something seriously afoot here. At times we call it intuition. Uh, there are times that we, we look at those things and we say, well, I, I just knew that I knew. As the child of God, because one of the signifying facts about us as the children of God is that we are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in the life of the believer. You have an internal mechanism for knowing the will of God and for knowing what's going on around you apart from just the facts. And it is so important to learn to listen to that voice and to be able to discern between that voice and the voice of the world. Nehemiah is a man who is a man of prayer. Amen. We've seen that throughout this book. We're going to see it more in this chapter. He's a man of prayer. He's talking to God. He's asking of God. He's beseeching God. He's saying, God, I want to know. And there isn't any other way to get that knowledge but going directly to the source of that knowledge, which is God. That's why sometimes I, I, I kind of snicker underneath my breath. I appreciate the fact that people come to me for some wisdom or guidance or counsel. But unless the Lord speaks to us, we're both in trouble. Amen? If you're looking for me to try and figure out what's going on, and it's just you and me and me alone in my brain, uh, we are, of most people on this earth, very miserable. We want to know the voice of the Lord. What's God saying? And he does that through his word, and he does that through his person, he does that through prayer, and he does that through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so as God speaks to us, Nehemiah understands exactly what these guys are up to. And whether he sees it in their eyes, or he hears it in the tone of their voice, or whether he reads between the lines, you know, we use all those phrases, amen? There's knowledge that's coming from something other than the words. And you all have experienced these things, maybe at just the human level and probably at the spiritual level. You just simply know that you know. You don't even know why you know. You just know. And very frequently that, in fact, is the Lord speaking to you. He's telling you something. 
He wants you to know what he has in mind. And so the enemies to this wall building project kind of appear here to accept their defeat. The walls are up. And now they're going to try another strategy, another plan. They're going to convene a peace summit. They're going to have some peace talks. And let's go to a neutral place. And we're going to, we're going to stop at Starbucks. And we're going to log onto the wireless. And we're going to just have a little conference while we're there. And you can dial your people. And I'll dial my people. And, you know, here we'll meet in the plains of Ono. Oh, no. The project's almost done. They obviously can't stop the project. So when, you can't, when the enemy can't stop the project, what do you think he attempts to do? He attempts to make it so that no matter whether the project's done or not, he's going to ruin the work that's going to go on inside the project. That's why I've told you so many times, churches are not buildings. Churches are people. Satan is after people. He's not after buildings. But buildings are a place where God's people get built up. And so buildings become under attack. Churches, the facilities come under attack. I can't tell you how many building projects I've done all over the world to where the biggest enemy we have is the government of the country that we're working in. It isn't getting the building done. It's not setting the gates, not hanging the doors. It's getting permission to actually use the facility that's already done, which we're still working on in Brazil, by the way. What appears on the surface here is a simple presentation of grievances, maybe some problem solving, uh, was not at all their motivation. And so here under Nehemiah's leadership, uh, the enemy's furious. He's going to concentrate his attack now in a way Uh, to try and subversively work his way in. And and I will tell you that leadership in the church is under a different set of pressures than are the people who are in the church, which would be you all. And, and, And I don't say that for any other reason than to just simply remind you to pray for the leadership of the church. We have many pastors at this church. We have all kinds of people involved in leadership and different things. And we have a different set of pressures upon our lives than you do because the enemy hates what's going on here. And so, you know, people often think, well, you know, their marriage is immune. No, our marriage is not immune. We, we put our shoes on one at a time just like you do. Uh, I have to have one to hang on to it and one to tie it with. And pretty soon I'm going to need the little Velcro thingies like my dad has. You know, you know we, we, have, we have our issues, you know. And Satan, Satan loves to come after us. Very frequently, uh, we're blamed for things that we don't do. We take responsibility for things that we didn't ourselves even engage in uh, because it goes along with the territory. And so that's kind of the picture here. Nehemiah is going to come under some very, very heavy scrutiny. Very often, as, as President Harry Truman wisely said in, in his book, Mr. Citizen, he said, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. You know, that's that's very true in a, in a sense of leadership. And so there are four basic strategies that are going to be laid out in this chapter, and I want to try and get to all of them tonight, and I believe we can do it. And the first one I want to show you, and it's very effective to this day, it is the temptation to compromise. Notice 
what's said here, and we'll pick up again in verse 2, and because the city's basically almost done, there's no breaks in the wall, that Sanballat and Geshem come to Nehemiah and say, let's meet together, let's meet among the villages in the plains of Ono, but they meant to do me harm, and so verse 3 goes on to say, so I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work, so that I cannot come down, why should the work cease while I leave to go down with you? But they sent the message to me four times. And I answered them the same each time. Notice the temptation to compromise here. You know, you get worn down after a while. People have asked me, and, and again, I don't want to belabor the point, but there are some issues that are, that are grievously weighting down our nation right now. And the temptation to compromise is huge until you come upon a story uh, as this doctor in Philadelphia that's being tried for seven counts of murder from his abortion clinic. You you know why I'm anti-abortion? Because it's an abomination to God. It would be easier for me to give in. It would be easier for me to just go, you know, I, I, you know, if God, you know, if it's okay, whatever God tells you. It'd be easier. The temptation to compromise. Nehemiah is here. He's almost got the city done. And these guys are not going to give up. It would be easier for him to give in. It'd be easier. You know, well, come on. Yeah, let's just try and work it out. Let's try and make peace in the wrong way. Peace that comes at the compromise of God's word is not peace. It's just compromise. And as leaders, we are called to be uncompromised in the defense of God's word. What it says, we do. What God stands for, we stand for. It may not be popular. It may not seem like that's the direction the world's going, but that has been the case since day one. I give you an example. His name was Noah. The whole world was going the other way. And he says, not me and not my family. I'll give you another one. Abraham. Made no sense for him to take his son Isaac, who was probably 37 years old. You think Isaac couldn't have taken an old man like Abraham? You look down through the history of what we know to be Scripture, and you see person after person who says, not on my watch, I'm not going to compromise. I'm going to finish what God told me to start and what God told me to finish. And I answered them the same time, same way each time your Bible says. You see, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem were opposed to everything that God was doing through Nehemiah. They knew that that fit city, if it was defensible, also included the Temple Mount of the one monotheistic religion that existed on the earth at the time. The one monotheistic religion that existed on the earth at the time. The whole rest of the world was polytheistic. They believed in many gods. And the Jews said there's one God. And to him and to him alone do we owe allegiance. And this little pile of stones, this ugly wall that you guys wouldn't put in your vegetable garden, 
represented protection of that one ideal, that there was a God who created heaven and earth, and mankind had a responsibility to him. So that wall represented a whole lot more than just safety, didn't it? It represented God's holiness. It represented his name. It represented somebody on this earth standing for the one true God. Unlike the many gods of of the Canaanites, unlike Molech and Ashtaroth, unlike they could look into the Kedron Valley, they could look around the corner and see into the Hinnom Valley, They, they could see the altar of Molech just down the canyon from them. And every moment that that wall stood firm, it stood against the rest of the world. Everybody inside of it stood for a different set of values than the whole rest of the world. There's a great temptation to compromise. And we can't take it. I can't take it. Once the enemy gets a foothold, he wants to weaken from within. And pretty soon you have liberal theology. Pretty soon you have the lack of the teaching of the inerrancy of God's word. Pretty soon from within you have strife and chaos. And that's why the church is disintegrating today. That's the problem we have in America. The church is no longer standing fast on the word of God. The church has abandoned the word of God. People will even say, well, I know what it says. I just choose to not believe it. You know, it was written too long ago. If that's what you believe, then it was never God's word to begin with. And if it is God's word and has always been God's word, then it is unchanged. You see, the temptation to compromise is huge. It's always been huge. You know, when you invite the devil to join your prayer team, I guarantee you he's going to join. I guarantee it. If Nehemiah had invited Sanballat, Geshem, and his cohorts that, well, just come on in. You know, we'll just, we'll just compromise and we'll kind of, you know, we'll lighten up a little bit, as people often tell me. Tell me of God, I can't lighten up on what God's Word says. It says what it says. You know, it's on me how I deliver that and prayerfully I do it in love. But what it says, it says. And what it means, it means. And so the enemy tries to get in. And so what does he do? Notice here the repeated exact same statement. Well, you know what? I just think it's too unloving to not allow for homosexual marriage. I think it's a woman's right to choose. I'm sorry, but no, it's not. It's God's right to choose. It's God's right to choose. It's not a woman's right to choose. He fabricated you. And it's a man's right to choose to not create children that he does not want. You see, we do have choice. The problem is is we exercise the choice wrongly 
and then we try and change what God says about it. There's always been temptation to compromise. The next thing we see is slander. Notice verse 5. And then Sanballat sent his servant to me as before the fifth time. This time a little different tact with an open letter in his hand. Now, I want you to understand what this is. An open letter at that time, because letters were then scrolls as a general rule. We had the privilege while we were in Israel to actually visit Qumran. We actually got to stand right across from Cave 4, where a vast majority of the, the major scrolls that are so important to us were found. There where the scroll of Isaiah was unearthed. Most of the writings at that time were in the form of scrolls. This is slightly before the scrolls were written at Qumran, about 300 years. So no doubt they were scrolls. Might have been pottery uh, that were that were inscribed, but highly likely, just like the scrolls at Qumran, they would have been rolled typically from right to left. There would have been two sides. And in the middle would have been a cord, and that cord would have had a piece of clay, normally stamped, called a bula. And that clay would have been the sign that that had not been read. And in this case, it was open. There was no seal. You see, that clay seal, or that wax seal, signified that this was only going to be viewed by whoever it was written to. So an open letter meant that You mean somebody else read this? You mean anybody could have unrolled that scroll and read what was inside of it? It would be the equivalent of you getting a letter from the IRS that was already opened. And it says, you are an income tax evader maximus. And you owe $8 jillion dollars. And you cheated on your taxes for like 10 years in a row. And your neighbor comes walking up the driveway with it. I didn't know you were a thief. Man, you're really a rotten person. Boy, I can't believe you would do that. That's what an open letter would be. And it was written. Now get this. Imagine you're in a land where... Your whole defense is a pile of rocks that a bunch of farmers, sheep herders, goat ranchers were able to stack up while they were busy holding a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. They didn't possess the Iron Dome missile system. They had no M1 Abrams tanks. They didn't have F-15s, F-16s. They had no J-35 strike fighter. No nuclear aircraft carriers, and certainly no ballistic missile submarines. Little different time. The wall meant everything. And in fact, if you cheesed off your neighbors, they were very likely to just come and take whatever you had. It wasn't an international incident. It's you got a better farm field than I got, and I want it. And so notice the open letter. It's reported among the nations. All around the land of Judea, that Nehemiah, you are a bad guy. Geshem says that you and the Jews plan to rebel. 
that you're building this city so you can conquer everyone else. Because that's what people did. It's what the Assyrians did. It's what the Babylonians did. They were currently under Persian rule. It would be what the Phoenicians would do, and the Macedonians would do, and the Carthaginians, and all of the rest of the empires that would come afterwards, the Ottoman Turks, all the way into the time of the European uh, Union. It kind of just took land from somebody else. It's what Hitler tried to do, yeah? Invades the Sudetenland, we're taking over Europe. So imagine this letter is open. It's been read by anybody who wants to read it, and in it, it says, and it's been circulated, that you guys plan to rebel. And therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. You're going to take everybody else over. And you've also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem. In other words, I'm the big guy, and I've got my own prophets to prove it. It's kind of like a prophet club, prophet of the month club. And the proclamation is this. There's a king in Judah. And now these matters will be reported to the king. So come, therefore, and let us consult together. You see what he's trying to do? He's trying to scare him. He's trying to bring this slanderous accusation. Is there anything true in what he just said? Absolutely none of it is true. But if you say a lie loud enough and long enough, people begin to believe it. Amen? It's what happens. You just shout it from the rooftops long enough, and pretty soon, you know what? It's the truth. And so because this letter is open, Nehemiah's very character has been slandered to all of the surrounding peoples. And so, as far as Nehemiah is concerned, first, you better come down here with us, and we want to meet with you, and we want to talk this through. We want you to compromise. Second, we're going to destroy your character. Because you know what? It doesn't even have to be true. I I have been down to San Bernardino County Jail to visit people who have been put there absolutely on the basis of the testimony of one person completely false. Not one thing about what was said about them was true. In fact, exactly the opposite was true. I had a case where a wife had actually beaten her own husband, physically beaten him, and he ended up in jail over her beating him. But you know what she said? He punched me. You know what she did? She slammed her own face into a wall. You know how we know? Her own kids eventually ratted her out. So slander can really damage your character. Slander can really hurt you. It can cause very bad things to come your way. And the only way to deal with slander is exactly what Nehemiah does here. It didn't happen. If you waste all of your time wandering around trying to find out who said what about whom about you, you're going to spend all of your time trying to figure out who said what about whom about you. I, I have talked to people who don't even know that I'm me, who are, in the, who are in the process of slandering me, and they don't even know that I'm me. 
I've stood in the post office in Green Valley Lake while some guy, that Jeff Gill, you know, he's just a rotten, stinking scum in that Calvary Chapel. They're trying to buy up the whole valley, and, you know, if I ever get a chance to, well, you can do that because I'm him. (laughs) Nice to meet you. I'm the rotten scum. Notice Nehemiah's response, verse 8. And then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. For all of them were trying to make us afraid, saying their hands will be weakened to the work, that it will not be done. And notice the bullet prayer gets right to the one-liner. Now, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. What they said isn't true. Don't believe a word of it. It didn't happen. You see, the great thing about the truth is it's true. The only time you've got to worry about what you have said is if it's not true. The old adage goes, you can tell the truth and forget it. You can tell a lie, you have to remember it the rest of your days. The truth's the truth. And what you do is what you do. And if you do what you say you're going to do, you don't have to defend yourself. The truth will defend you. And so Nehemiah, his response is to this gossip, look, it didn't happen. The problem with most gossip is you never know where it really comes from most of the time. And by the time it gets back around to the hearer, just like my friend in Green Valley Lake, No doubt he had been fed all kinds of idiotic rumors and gossip at the time we had acquired Ski Green Valley, and we had a couple of houses up there. Uh, Didn't bother to tell everybody that they had been donated to us. They were given to us. We were not buying up everything in the valley. We had a total of three houses in Green Valley Lake. You know, it's just this insanity. But you know what? I could have sat there for an hour and a half. Well, where would you hear that? How dare you say that? It would have taken the rest of my days on this planet to try and find out who said what about whom. Don't glorify it. Don't let the enemy get to you by trying to chase down rumor, slander, and innuendo. It does no good. Flatly deny it and get back to what God's called you to do. That's all you got to do. Just say it didn't happen. Sorry. Wherever your little world is, you just go back there because the people with tinfoil hats are calling. (laughs) This would have been a serious charge, by the way, in Nehemiah's day. I mean, if this gets back to Artaxerxes, the Persian king who now rules over him, he's a dead man. Unless it's not true. If it's not true, he didn't have a thing to fear. It wasn't true. So he had nothing to fear. Notice the third thing. And these are what I like to call veiled threats. Isn't it interesting how people have not enough, shall we say, uh, moxie to actually walk up to you and give you a real threat? Very often the threats come as, well, you know. Afterward, I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Methabel, who is a secret informer. He was in the know. And so he stood outside of the city gate listening to everything that happened. 
um, we would say he was a gossip. Hearing all the little juicy tidbits. Do you, do you know why it drives me nuts when I find these stories circulating around? Is because I can't believe people are so immature to sit around and occupy their time with not a shred of truth or evidence of said same being involved in everything that's being said. They just sit there and repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat and then, and you know, well, you heard, you know, that Jeff Gill guy in Calvary Chapel, all of a sudden, before you know it, you realize at one point in time, I was actually called in the Mountain News a Cardinal of Pope Chuck. I was. I kind of took it as a compliment, actually. I, I wanted the hat, but... Yeah, it's like, they're taking over the mountain. Pretty soon you'll have to be a Christian to go into Lake, Lake Arrowhead. Like we were going to have some kind of, you know, gate set up and scanner. <clears throat> oh, you're unsaved. Get out of here. It's crazy. And yet it gets printed in a newspaper. And so I had people call me. They threatened me. They threatened Chuck. They threatened the church. They threatened my family. Oh, if you do this, we'll, we'll put you out of, you can't, you know, we're gonna, you know, just blah, 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 blah. We weren't doing anything. There was nothing for them to do because we weren't doing anything. There's no grand takeover of the entire mountain by Calvary Chapel. Just because we happen to own a conference center in Twin Peaks and one in Green Valley Lake does not exactly constitute a takeover of the entire mountain. But the secret informer said, come, let us meet in the house of God. Now, I love this because notice what he says, within the temple, and let's close the doors of the temple, for they're coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come and kill you. Not during the day, they're going to kill you at night. You won't even know they're coming. You're going to be asleep in your bed and you're going to be snuggling with your wife. You're going to be having a wonderful dream. And, <laughs> and yes, I'm taking artistic license, but I don't care. I'm on jet lag. <laughs> but for purpose of illustration, it kind of fits. As you, you can see him sitting there. Oh man, you're in trouble now. And they're going to come get you when you least expect it. And they'll kill you. Notice how he responds to this one. And then I said, Nehemiah says to him, Should such a man as I flee? You think after all I've been through, do you realize how far I've come to be where I am right now? You think I'm going to quit? You see, veiled threats are just that. They're veiled threats. And in who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? You see, what he was saying is, hey, you know, I'm a priest. I work in the temple. You know, nobody can go in there. I mean, if you're inside the temple, you're safe. And I mean, the bad guys, of course, they never desecrate the house of God. And so why don't you just become a monk? Give up this whole building contractor thing that you've been doing with the wall project. Just let that go. Come on, hang out with me. 
We'll eat some nice unleavened bread. We'll have some of that old crusty fish that everybody brings on Tuesday. And we'll just hang out. He says, why don't you run away? Why don't you give up? Jesus, stop doing what you do. I will not go in, he says. And then I perceived that God had not sent him at all. <laughs> More discernment. Amen? This guy isn't from God. It's from the enemy. It's from the pit of hell. Call him what he is. Look, dude, you're a false prophet. It's that simple. You're not speaking for the Lord, and just because you got a nice robe on means diddly. Doesn't even matter to me. Couldn't care less. I had an interesting thing one time when I was back in Washington, D.C. The guys I hang out with, and they love the Lord. Priests for life, great guys, love Jesus. But they asked me where my collar was. And I said, wait, I'll go get it. At the time, I was wearing a plain shirt, and I went and I got a Hawaiian shirt and put that on. And I folded the collar up like this and kind of pulled it around. And I came back and I said, how does that look? And one guy actually, you know how little kids kind of blow stuff out their nose? He did that. He actually laughed so hard. He... You see, it actually doesn't matter what you wear. It matters who you are. Because I've seen some guys that look really holy that are from the pit of hell. Anybody that abuses kids is from the pit of hell. Anybody that steals from widows is from the pit of hell. Oh, they look really good, and they got their own TV show. And they stand up there, I'll praise you, Jesus. But there ain't no Jesus in them. And so he says, not me. God hasn't sent you. But he pronounced this prophecy against me because of Sanballat and Tobiah had hired him. You're nothing but a hireling. You're the lips of your boss, Satan. And for this reason he was hired, that I should be afraid and act that way and sin, so that they might not have cause for an evil report, that they might reproach me. You see they could see that Nehemiah was standing his ground, and so they're trying one thing after another to try and take him out. Hence why I started the way I did tonight. The enemy's not going to give up. The enemy doesn't like the impact that this church has on this community. And the enemy has tried more than once to destroy this church. And the enemy has put people inside of this church to try and destroy this church. And praise God... Those people have been declared false prophets and asked to go find some other place to take their good words that they believe they need to speak. And so it is wherever there is a work of God. You can count on an attack from in within and you will have these veiled threats. And says, my God, remember Tobiah. Notice this. Notice each time he turns back to the Lord and he prays. Each time he turns back to the Lord and he prays. He doesn't go on a counter-smear campaign. I hate it when the church does that. That's why I hate, sometimes I just despise magazines like Christianity Today. 
because they literally shoot at good people. And then they get these things going on back and forth and name-calling and just blasphemous things. And before you know it, they're just nitpicking. I like the response here. My God, remember Sanballat and Tobiah. And that's the way I've learned to pray. God, you know who's right, you know who's wrong here. You know who's right with you and you know who's wrong here. You take care of it. Let God fight your battles. According to their works and the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who have made me afraid. He says, God, you take care of them. It's your job. I'm not going to go looking for stuff. I don't really care what they've said. It's no skin off my back. I, I, I heard their words. Yes, in a human sense, I could stand there and tremble in my boots. But the fact of the matter is, if homosexual marriage is adopted in the United States of America and I am forced to perform one, I'm going to jail. And I don't say that to threaten anyone. I believe God's word is true. And I'd rather go to jail and be okay with God than stand around compromised with men. And if that's what it takes, then so be it. You have to trust God and you've got to leave it in his hands. And I want you to remember what we said as we studied chapter 2. As, as we went into chapter 3, you need to be praying and working at the same time. Do what you can to bring about the right result, but leave the results in God's hands. You see, it was actually forbidden for Laman to go beyond the altar of the burnt offering in the temple. Nehemiah could have actually been killed for doing what's being offered to him. That's somebody who knows his Bible. That's somebody who stood fast on the word. He understood that if he actually did what was being said to him, sure, he might be protected for a day, and then he'd be found guilty of blasphemy and killed. The enemy always has an ulterior motive in the things that he would allow for a temporary time of reprieve. It's the way he works. So that you get comfortable in your compromise. You get comfortable in buying into the, the actions of others. And then finally, notice the political and public intrigue. They're not going to give up. We're going to put you on the front page of the Ono Times every day. We're going to have a blog about you. We're going to create a new web domain, Nehemiah.com, and you're going to get ripped every day. And so the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. The wall's done. That wall you looked at got finished 2,500 years ago. Because Nehemiah wouldn't compromise. He wouldn't give in to the slander, the scandal. He says, you know what? Don't care. Going to keep teaching what I know I need to teach. Going to keep preaching what I know I need to preach. Going to keep doing what I know I need to do. Not because it's popular. Not because it's politically correct. But because God said so. That's going to make you enemies in the world. You're going to get called narrow-minded and bigoted. You're even going to get called unloving. You're going to get called uncaring. Because there are a lot of things that God has said plainly in His Word. 
not on my watch. And if you stand on those things, if you actually believe that marriage is a holy institution created by God and it's between one man and one woman for life, you are going to get called names. I can't even believe what's going on in the state assembly right now. That we're actually debating there is a bill right now on the state assembly floor that will make it legal for your sons and your daughters to choose what gender they are when they get to school that day. I feel like I'm a woman. Trust me, every teenage boy on the face of the earth is going to be going, well, I'm going into the girls' gym because today I'm a girl. Just thought I'd go in there. I mean, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? I, I know I'm wearing my baseball uniform, but feel like a girl today. Oh, you don't want to stand against that. I mean, after all, people should be able to express themselves. Please. we got to stand firm. Last time I looked, God created people male and female. That's what His Word says. Pretty plainly, in the beginning, He created them male and female doesn't say, well, except for the ones he didn't create, male or female, he actually created them the opposite of what he actually created. It's coming to us. Then all of our enemies heard of it, and all the nations around us saw these things, and they were very disheartened with their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was done by our God. When God's people stand on God's principles and do things God's way, God gets the credit for it, and consequently, men fear God. They go, God means business. This guy isn't going to back down. Why I'm telling you what I'm telling you. I might have to go to jail. Seriously. Might have to. There may not be any other way. But for pastors to say, enough's enough. We're going to jail. Throw us in jail. We believe God meant what he said. And if we got to go to prison, then we're going to prison. At least people will know that we stand on the principles that we declare. The problem with the church is people don't stand on the principles which they declare. And the hypocrisy is the main tool of the enemy. And he goes, well, they say it there, but they don't do it over here. Nehemiah said it, and Nehemiah did it. And that's what has to happen. And also in those days, as the noble of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and the letters to Tobiah came to them. For many in Judah were pledged to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era. And his son, Johanahan, had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Bechariah. So he was very well connected. Tobiah was a guy to be feared, unless you fear God more than you fear Tobiah. The only of God, may we have the fear of God. It's the beginning of wisdom, your Bible says, by the way. May we have a reverence for God that overrides everything else. It overrides everything else. 
I just believe God at His Word. I take Him at His Word. I want to do what His Word says. And if He's spoken, that's what I want to do. I believe Him. And it is only if we take that stance that other people will believe that we believe what we say. If we say something one day and do not do it the next, what do you think people believe? They believe that we do not believe what we have said. That's why the church is in the trouble it's in right now. It's because the church has said one thing and done exactly the opposite. The church hasn't held marriage sanctified. The divorce rate is the same in the church as it is in the world, and that is a shame to God. Because pastors won't stand up and say, you know what, God hates divorce. And I don't care that you say you've had verbal abuse. Let's fix the verbal abuse. Let's fix the things that are broken. Let's build the walls of the city back up. Let's not just move on because it's popular. Let's build up what God calls holy. Part of these walls protected the temple of the living God. And we need to stand. And also they reported his good deeds before me and reported my words to him. And Tobiah continued, is the inference there, to send letters to frighten me. Battle didn't end there. This well-connected man continued to send those threats. But Nehemiah continued to stand. He continued to hold his ground. He didn't care what it cost. He said, whatever it is, it's up to my God to provide for the cost to be paid. It's how we ought to live our lives today. It's what we ought to do today. Don't give in to those things. Don't listen to that slander. The story began as we saw in chapter 2, and so I prayed. He prayed again, and so when I came to Jerusalem, I prayed. And so as they labored on the wall, he prayed. And as these threats came, he prayed. As the accusations came, he prayed. And then he got busy. It's a recipe for success. Pray and then get busy. Don't sit around pondering what the enemy has brought as an accusation. Sit around pondering the truth of what God's word plainly declares. Pray about it and go do it. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for these precious saints. Lord, for the beauty of your word and for the power that it still has to transform our lives. Lord, this story was written 2,500 years ago, but it's never been more applicable than it is right now in our world. We need more leaders like Nehemiah, and we need more saints on the wall that are unafraid of an occasional arrow, that aren't listening to the shouts in the valley, that don't care about the work that needs to be done. They don't see the work. They see the goal. And Father, we pray that as your people, that you'd strengthen us to the tasks that are at hand, 
We pray for our connections uh, wherever we find ourselves, Lord, that uh, you would use us to bring about your righteousness in this world. And Lord, we admit we have our faults. I have my faults, Lord. Thank you for forgiving me of those faults and thank you for using me anyway. Thank you for this church and the precious saints that serve in it, Lord. Make us mighty. Cause us to be unashamed and unafraid. Help us to pray always and help us to get busy. Time is short and the end draws near. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know who holds tomorrow. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we're so grateful that you've called us as your children. Bless us, Lord, we pray. Put an anointing upon us that is clear to the world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and amen. And we'll try and work in, you know, some of the whole trip thing for the next few weeks.